Welcome to the Connect Church Podcast. Our mission is to connect the disconnected to a growing relationship with God. You can connect with God, and we can help. Last summer, my wife Erin and I were up in Michigan for my best friend's wedding. Now, it was a beautiful waterside ceremony right on Lake Michigan, close to the Upper Peninsula. And so you would walk from the sands up through this wooded path to this little hidden alcove where the service was. Now, the day before this, the rehearsal, bride and groom on almost no sleep wake up to find that the events manager has set out every single table and chair incorrectly and is refusing to change it. Now, on top of this, later in the day, the caterer for the rehearsal dinner calls and says they're out. They cancel last minute. So now I get a call from the groom and he says, Nate, we have no food. Now I'm sitting at my hotel about 25 minutes away from the venue. So this leaves me roughly 35 minutes to pull together a rehearsal dinner. So what we're talking about here is essentially a miracle. So I start thinking and I'm like, okay, Chick-fil-A, Uh, maybe, probably not fancy enough. Matt may disagree with me, but I'm like, there's gotta be another option. And then it hits me, Panera. Slightly fancier, still pretty fast. So I jump in the car, I go to the local Panera, I walk in, go to the self-serve kiosk, and punch in rehearsal dinner for 50. Now, not more than a minute goes by, and the store manager comes up to me and says, sir, I think there was an error here. You ordered dinner for 50, not five. So I look at her with all of the intensity of a coach on game day and I say, no ma'am, there's no error here. Let me explain what's going on. And so I clue her in to the fact that there is a bride right before her wedding day waiting for this dinner. So she looks back at me and she says, this is gonna take a miracle. And so I'm like, give me an apron, put me back in the kitchen, put me to work. And she's like, legally, I can't have you do that, but we're gonna work on it. So I'm cheering on the sidelines. Now, 25 minutes later, they have dinner for 50 a meal every 30 seconds, a miracle in the making. So now I have my back seat full of Panera. I'm speeding over to Walmart, running through the aisles, grabbing as many two liters as my arms can carry, back in the car, over to the venue, lay it all out, voila, rehearsal dinner for 50, a miracle. Guests show up, nobody has any idea that the plan wasn't all along Panera. Now, why do I tell you this story? Well, something very similar happened years ago in a town called Cana. You see, Jesus was at a wedding and he got a call. The bride and groom had run out of wine and he was needing to work a miracle. Now this is one of two different stories that we're gonna look at in John chapter two this morning. And the framework that we're gonna use to look at these stories comes from a pastor and author named John Mark Comer. He talks about the process of spiritual formation or becoming a little bit more like Christ as three parts. One, be with Jesus. Two, become like Jesus and three, do what he did. So again, first, be with Jesus, spend time in his presence. Second, become like Jesus, increasingly mirror the characters and qualities of him. And then three, do what he did, if he were you. So if you put together the story of me at my best friend's wedding in this last step, do what Jesus did, you can basically see that I'm living the life of Christ and therefore preaching this morning. I'm (laughs) totally kidding, you can ask my wife. I still have quite a long way to go. But the actual point that we'll look at is if we can understand more about who Jesus was, we can also by extension understand the very nature of God. And if we can understand more about the person Jesus was, at the same time, we can understand the people that we are called to become 
as we are slowly formed to look more like Christ every day. I like the way C.S. Lewis says this in Mere Christianity. He says, He, Jesus, came to this world and became a man in order to spread to other men the kind of life he has. Every Christian is to become a little Christ. The whole purpose of becoming a Christian is simply nothing else. Now, as we work to become little Christ in our life, I believe that John intentionally includes two very different stories in chapter two to tell us that Jesus is dynamic. You can't use a single word to describe him. You can't plot him on a single dimension. I think if we gave him a personality test, we would get some pretty confusing results back. Because while that first story is Jesus working quietly behind the scenes at a wedding, the next story that we're gonna look at is about an explosive encounter with the religious leaders of his day. And so this point, this is the thread that we're gonna to use to stitch together these two stories as we go. So again, two stories in John 2 that teaches us both about who Jesus was so that we may become like him and that we may believe in him as the divine son of God. So let me pray and then we'll dig in. Lord, um, thank you so much for this morning for every person here in this room. And thank you most of all that through your word, we can understand who your son was. And I pray that this morning I would speak clearly and that you would have a clear word for every person in this room. Lord, it's in your name that we pray. Amen. So here we go. We're going to dig in. If you have either a Bible or if you want to open up your app, we're going to be in John chapter 2. And we're pretty much going to camp out here all morning. So as you open up to John 2, I'll set the stage here. So this is the first story, the wedding at Cana. And John is picking up just a few days after Jesus had called his disciples. And so step one in that framework, they're beginning to spend a little bit more time, like Jesus, learning more about him. And so John recounts the story this way. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. Now when the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Jesus' reply, Woman, why do you involve me? My hour has not yet come. So his mother says to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, so they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now, draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. So they did so. The master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine, and he did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. I mean, a smart strategy. But you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. So now there are three noticeable traits about Jesus that we're going to draw out of this first story. The first of which is Jesus is understated. If you notice what John is saying, this is the first miracle that he works. It's also the first of seven signs that John is going to give us to reveal his divine nature. And so Jesus would have been about 30 years old at this point. And if you think about it, that means he's lived a pretty ordinary everyday life up until this point, because the gospels by and large fast forward from his birth to this point, mentioning only a few brief points in between. So I imagine they just didn't see many noteworthy points that they wanted to write up about. And that's pretty incredible if you think about it. Because the point is there's God, made man, comes to earth to save humanity. And how does he spend his time? Pretty much like everybody else, going through the ordinary, everyday routines. And in many ways, 
This first miracle is much like Jesus' humble beginnings. You see, Cana was a rather obscure town in the corner of the country, far removed from the religious epicenter of Jerusalem at that time. And I think the point here is that Jesus wasn't after praise or recognition from man. He didn't need an audience. Actually, if you look at who his audience was, it was the servants. It says, in referring to the master, he did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Now, there's a related story to this that you might have heard of. It went viral a few years ago. The Washington Post teamed up with a Grammy Award-winning violinist named Joshua Bell. And moments before this, or rather days before this, Joshua had sold out massive concert halls, tickets going for well above $100 a seat. And so they decide that they're going to have Joshua Bell go down into the subway in a very nondescript outfit and play. So he's playing on one of the world's most expensive violins, some of the most complex, beautiful classical pieces in the world, Bach, Mendelssohn. And over the course of an hour, he makes a grand total of $32 from seven people, mostly because one of those people actually recognized who he was. And so the point is, we don't expect great things in humble settings. We tend to overlook the ordinary. However, this is the example that we see in Jesus. He was understated. And so the question that we'll come back to today is, who are you becoming? Are you somebody who needs the center stage? Or like Jesus, are you somebody who's comfortable playing the background? Now, understated, that's point one. Second point is Jesus is intentional. Part of why I believe Jesus was so understated is that he was following a plan. He was working according to his father's plan. And so there was a specific point in time that he was waiting patiently for to reveal his divinity. Keep in mind that Mary, his mother, she had also lived for about 30 years up until this point without spilling the beans. And so if I put myself in Mary's shoes, I'm probably thinking like, yes, finally, son, it's go time, do your thing. But what does Jesus say? He's not exactly saying, yes, mother. He says, my hour has not yet come. So Jesus was waiting. He was an intentional. But eventually, he does act. And the reason that we see is that it's going to build up the faith of his infant disciples. It says the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. So this was Jesus's purpose. This is what he was intentional with. The analogy here is like dropping a large rock into water. Now, if you want to make a big impact, you get a big stone and you drop it straight down. What happens? Large ripples begin to spread out over the entire surface. However, if instead you decide that you're trying to get a rock to go as far as possible, you skip it across the surface, what happens? It's very shallow. It doesn't break the surface, and so the impact dissipates. Those ripples fade away very quickly. And much in the same way, Jesus went deep. He was intentional with a few group of people, and look what happened to his message. It spread as far as us today in this room, looking at it. And so I think the question then, back for us today, is who are you becoming? Are you somebody who is spread thin across a wide number of surface-level relationships? Or are you going deeper? Are you intentional with a narrow set of relationships, just like Jesus? Now, here's the third point. We see that Jesus is our provider. He provides for both our physical as well as our spiritual needs. And this is where some of the details of the water and the wine and the jars are important. So in the historic context, for a family to run out of wine at an event like this, that was a really big deal. It would have meant shame for this family. And so here is when Mary steps in and begins to pray. It's the first prayer that we see. It's nothing that's very fancy or complex. She's simply praying in Jesus's name, asking for a miracle. Now, the second point that we see is it's not just prayer. It's prayer and action together. 
the action of the servants more specifically. Mary's direction was, do whatever he tells you. Now, if you put yourself in the shoes of the servant, what's going on here? There's a guy who you've never met, who's like, fill this up with water, give it to your master. And if you're one of the servants, you're probably thinking like, I mean, the party's been going on, people are maybe a little tipsy, but they're gonna recognize that this is water. Like, this is a big deal, this is my job, to show up well for my master. And yet, they were, fi- they were faithful. They filled the jugs up to the brim. And so the reaction that we see in verse 10, it says, everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink but you have saved the best till now. Now, the next point is on that last thing, you have saved the best till now? Like, no, he didn't. The groom fell down. He ran out of wine. He didn't do his job. Much like I fall down time and time again as a husband here on earth, and we all do. But that's the point, is that when we can't come through, God does. If only we would pray to and rely on him. The story that I think of here is about a decade ago, I was living in the Dominican Republic working for a nonprofit. We would have different student groups come down for short-term missions projects, building up an orphanage. And now the local man named Ramon, who had started up the orphanage years before this, he had started to school. And he decided with his team that they were gonna make sure that everybody in the school had at least one square meal a day. Now at a certain point, they began to run low on supplies and run low on food. And so what did they do? Well, in Ramon's words, they prayed. They prayed for food. Now, the next day, a truck transporting chickens broke down at the front gate of the school. And so not only did they get food the next day, they got chickens that continued to provide them food day after day. I remember sitting there listening to Ramon recount this story with such joy, not because he went out and did something in order to provide, but he simply prayed and relied on God to come through. Now, it's not only the physical needs, however, we also see Jesus coming through and providing for our spiritual needs. And this is where the details of both the wine and the jars are important. You see, most scholars believe that the wine, which represented our joy, running dry represented spiritual barrenness. So if you look at the details of how the containers here are described, it says nearby stood six stone jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing. So these were purification jars used for washing. And so it's almost like Jesus is saying, I'm gonna substitute the purification rituals of Israel for my own blood. And in fact, as we continue in the series through John, later in chapter six, a little preview, we'll see Jesus say, my blood is the true drink. And unless you drink my blood, you have no life in you. And so back to the question of the day, who is it that you're becoming? Are you somebody who tries to rely on yourself or are you relying on God to come through? as you pray to and look to him. So to summarize what we've seen so far, here's the picture of Jesus that we have. He's somebody who is understated, he's intentional, he's patient, and he's providing in the background. Now, we're about to put all of that into some tension as we look at the second story, because we get a very different and a far more intense version of Jesus. And again, I think that's on purpose, because like our creator, we're more than one thing. We're dynamic. Recently, I was reading a memoir called The Right of a Lifetime. It was written by the former CEO of Disney, Bob Iger. And he kind of recounts his rise up through some of the defining moments of his career. See, he started in the newsrooms, moving equipment, worked his way all the way up to become the CEO of a massive corporation. Now, the crowning moment of his time at Disney was gonna be opening up the Shanghai Disneyland. It was a massive project 
that he had spent over 18 years as CEO working on. So here's from his memoir describing this process. He says it was one of the biggest investments in the history of the company. Numbers don't really do this park justice, but here are a few just to give you some sense of its scope. Shanghai Disneyland costs about $6 billion to build. It's about 963 acres large, about 11 times the size of Disneyland. And at various stages of its construction, as many as 14,000 workers were living on the premise. Massive, massive achievement. Now, when Bob Iger was in Shanghai waiting for the opening ceremony, so he was about to cut the ribbon, give the keynote, reach the peak, the pinnacle of his career, he got a call. Tragedy had struck. Back in Florida, two-year-old Lane Graves was playing near the water when an alligator came up, snatched him, drug him down below the surface, killed him. And so Bob is recalling this, and he says, I called the parents, and as a father and a grandfather, I couldn't fathom what they were experiencing. So there's a now famous photo of Bob sitting on the phone moments before he's about to go cut the ribbon to open up and achieve the defining moment of his career, mourning, grieving the, the young life lost far too soon. And I think that story is very interesting because the question is like, how does one person have the capacity for both of these experiences? And of course, we find our answer in the person of Jesus. And so this is where the second story picks up. John begins to tell us about a very explosive encounter between Jesus and the religious leaders of the day. So he recounts it this way. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem in the temple courts. He found there people selling cattle, sheep, doves, others sitting at the tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove off from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here, stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered what is written, zeal for your house will consume me. So now the religious leaders, they respond to him. They say, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? So Jesus answers, destroy the temple and I will raise it again in three days. And they replied, it's taken 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. Now, while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. So it's here, Jesus' disciples are beginning to come to a deeper realization of who Jesus truly is. See, at first they're like, okay, Jesus gets us into some weddings. He keeps the party going. This is pretty cool. And I have to imagine at this point, they were like, whoa, this is a very different look. And so John is helping both the disciples and us understand more deeply truly who Jesus was. So the first point that we come to in this story is that Jesus was courageous. So some historical context in this moment, you see at the time, physical places were incredibly important and very meaningful because Jesus's presence physically dwelled in the temple. And so this was the place that Jews would come to worship, to make sacrifices. Now, Gentiles weren't allowed inside the inner sanctuary at this time. And so there was a courtyard where they would worship. And so John also mentions that this is the Passover, which means at that time, the city would have swelled from roughly 50,000 people to 200,000 people. 
So picture you trying to worship in a courtyard that is now overcrowded, noisy, smelly, filled with livestock. That's exactly the scene that Jesus walks into. Now, it's not just Jesus that sees this, though. It's the religious leaders, other people who are there to worship, and everybody's silent. Nobody calls it out, except for Jesus. He walks in and is courageous when others are cowering. And what does he say? He says, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. So we come back to this question for us. Who are you becoming? Somebody who stays silent or somebody who speaks up? Somebody who's courageous in the face of an injustice or somebody who cowers? Now, the second point that we see about Jesus from this story is that he's holy and only concerned with his father's name. His goal is to restore proper respect, zeal, worship for his father. And it reminds the disciples, they recall a verse in Psalm 69.9. It says, zeal for your house has consumed me. And we see in Zechariah 14, a prophecy that says, there shall no longer be a traitor in the house of the Lord of hosts on that day. So said another way, Jesus isn't concerned with playing nice with the religious establishment of this time. And it's not exactly a very politically savvy way to further your ministry. But really, Jesus didn't care. Now, the religious leaders, they wanted to hold on to their power. They wanted to conserve their way of life. And so they challenged Jesus. And they say, verse 18, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Which brings us to the next point. Jesus was deeply misunderstood. Because if you look at how he answers this question, not even his disciples understand what he's saying. They're a little confused. Because he's referring to his resurrection. He says in, in verse 19, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. Because it wasn't until years later, according to John, that the disciples realized what's going on. It says in verse 22, when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this. So not a minute before this, which means that Jesus lived his whole life misunderstood. People thought he was not just odd, but I mean, he was very, he was very interruptive. This is a pretty explosive encounter. And so back to the question for us today, who are you becoming? Are you somebody who is concerned with protecting your reputation at all costs or concerned with elevating God's name, even at the cost of your own reputation? And finally, the last point that we come to here is that Jesus is Christ, our Lord. See, he's referring to his father's house, which implies that Jesus was God's son and by extension that he was divine. And this is a big claim. It was big back then and it's still big today. I mean, this is the central question in Christianity that we all come to. I like the way C.S. Lewis defines and describes the gravity of this question in asking, is Jesus God's son? When he writes, I'm trying to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept that Jesus was a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is one thing we must not say. He says, a man who was merely a man and said the sorts of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. In fact, he would either be a lunatic, <laughs> I love the way Lewis says this, on a level with a man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He's not left that open to us. He didn't intend to. And personally, I think Lewis's point about Jesus here is right on. I mean, you see a guy walking through the temple, cracking a whip, 
overthrowing, overturning tables and clearing them out. Like, what would you have thought? He looked like a lunatic. But again, as we saw, that wasn't Jesus's concern. He was only concerned about his father as he was God's son. And so this leaves us with a choice to make. I mean, think about it. What is it that you believe? Was God a, or Jesus rather, a human, a good moral teacher, and that's it? I mean, if that's the case, then it leaves open the option to take some of the things that you like from his life and put away everything that you don't, because there's no true authority or divinity behind him. But on the flip side, if you do believe that Jesus was the Son of God, came to earth, died, rose again, it's like Lewis says, that leaves us really no choice at all. There's only one option, to fall at his feet, call him Lord, and to surrender all of our life. So in closing, John is leaving us with two very different sides of Jesus to balance. I mean, on the one hand, he's patient. He's working behind the scenes. On the other hand, he's bold. He's courageous. He's explosive in his encounter. And I think that's very interesting because we see that he is full of contrast. There's a theologian named, named James Stewart who helps us work through this tension that we see in the person of Christ. And I like the way he says this. He says, he was so austere that evil spirits and demons cried out in terror at his coming, yet he was so genial and approachable that the children loved to play with him. No one was ever half so kind or compassionate to sinners, yet no one spoke such red-hot, scorching words about sin. He was the servant of all, washing the disciples' feet, yet, back to John 2, it says, masterfully he strode into the temple. The hucksters and the traitors fell over one another in their mad rush to get away from the fire that they saw blazing in his eyes. So finally, Stuart talks about this tension inside the person of Christ that we see. He says, there's nothing in history like the union of contrast which confronts us in the gospels. The mystery of Jesus is the mystery of divine personality. I like the way he says that, the mystery of divine personality. And so it's in the person of Jesus that we find our call to believe in the divine, to rely on a divine provider who's working behind the scenes whether we need Panera, wine, a truck full of chicken, salvation for our sins, he comes through time and time again. And at the same time, we find an answer for all of the tension that we feel within ourselves. I mean, we're not just one thing. Sometimes we're patient, other times we're more explosive, quick to act. Sometimes we speak up, other times we stay silent. And this is the example that we see. I mean, just like the story of Bob Iger, Jesus too was at moments brought to his knees mourning the loss of life. Others, he was standing preaching to crowds. And that's the point. We follow somebody who understands it. He did it all. He walked the earth just as we do today. And so now we come to the two final questions for us to think about today. What is it that you believe about Jesus? Was he the son of God? And by extension, what does that mean for your life? Are you called to surrender, to follow him? And as you do follow him, if we think about the framework and the question that we've come to, what does that mean for who you're called to become? And as you think about the week ahead, I'll end with this. Who is it that you're becoming? Are you becoming more like Christ more today than yesterday?